this is how an agency, which is supposed to be protecting investors, but also facilitating capital formation and maintaining fair and efficient and orderly markets is literally refusing to do its job, refusing to carry out its mission to the point where so many people now are thinking about, should we just abandon the United States as a market for digital assets? This episode is brought to you by Chainalysis, the leading blockchain data platform that powers investigation, compliance, and risk management tools used by both businesses and government agencies around the globe. You'll hear more about Chainalysis later in the show. Welcome back, everybody. We have two very special guests, which we've had on before, and this is part of a broader regulatory series, which is becoming increasingly more important. Uh, we have Rebecca and Jake again. Welcome back, guys. It's great to have you. Thanks for great having to be us. Back. Of course. So um, why don't we start? I mean, there's been a lot that happened last week, some of which we covered in, in the in the weekly roundup last week. But I mean, you guys are the experts. You, you, you live and breathe this stuff. You've been doing it for a long time. So why don't we start uh, with, you, you know, the SEC, the recent enforcement actions and just your thoughts there? Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll start. Um, and I'll spare everyone the, the gory details because I think we were all focused on this all week last week. But in short, the SEC decided to bring two enforcement actions against the two largest crypto exchanges in the world, Binance and Coinbase, um, making allegations that frankly didn't surprise most of us who have been following this from a regulatory perspective. The SEC thinks that all digital assets except for Bitcoin are securities. And they think that anyone who is creating a secondary market for trading in those assets is violating the federal securities laws by not registering as a national securities exchange. Um, they also think that staking services are securities. They think that stable coins like BUSD are securities, right? The SEC does not like crypto. Um, not exactly a big revelation. I think, you know, the only thing that was maybe a bit new from the news last week was some of the allegations about Binance um, and some of their, I guess you could call it more unsavory conduct. Although we've sort of seen those allegations for, for a while as well. You know, I think for us that the takeaway is um, this is not a surprise. We knew that we were going to have this fight. In a sense, it's almost a bit of a relief to finally be in the fight as opposed to sitting around thinking, what's the SEC going to do next? When are they going to do it? What's it going to look like? Now we sort of know what the world is and how to navigate it. And until there is a resolution in that case, frankly, it's business as usual. And I think there's been a lot of relief in the industry where people thought, you know, when the SEC finally takes its shot, then all of crypto is just going to collapse immediately. And now here we are, right? We're, we're still trading digital assets on secondary markets. We're still building. We're still investing. Um, we're still, you know, moving on and, um, and, and doing what we do best. So I think, you know, it was a rough week, but overall, uh, the takeaway is um, let's just keep at it. And, uh, you know, in time, I'm, I'm sure we can work this out. It felt like uh, the SEC strategy has basically been to go after these centralized exchanges or actually even some DEXs, but maybe start with some small exchanges, chalk up some wins there like the Ether Deltas of the world, move to some bigger ones like Bittrex. And now they've kind of gone after the, the two big bosses, right? Coinbase and Binance. I'm curious what you think comes next. Like, are they coming after the tier one DeFi protocols next? Are they coming after the L1s? Like, it, I, like I don't know Gary Gensler that well, but it seems like he's not stopping here. I'm, I'm Rebecca, maybe I'm... Curious to get your thoughts on this. I think it's very clear just from the progression as you laid it out and from the different entry points that a lot of these different complaints lay out that there is a concerted effort to choke off the industry in a number of ways. So if you look at a lot of uh, the securities allegations in the complaints, they're for the L1s and L2s, right? So to really try to 
bring down volume and transactions that are going on there. I think one of the newest types of allegations um, that I would say is not a huge surprise to a lot of lawyers, but maybe a broader surprise to the industry is the allegations about how wallets route orders and themselves are broker dealers. And I do think that previews that we're moving away from the centralized exchanges in the SEC's eyes, and we're moving into more of the software side of things and what types of activities that this software actually facilitates for users and how he wants to scope that in, he being Chair Gensler, or how the SEC wants to scope that into their remit too, some of which may not actually be in their remit. I think the other thing that has sort of gotten lost in the fray, but is important to think about, especially given this week, is that the SEC has a proposed rulemaking out there on scoping indexes and DeFi into the definition of exchange under the 1934 Act and responses are due tomorrow, you know, June 13th. Um, And so there are a lot of people who've already put in their responses, but there is already an effort going on to bring DeFi protocols within the scope and even validators for L1s and L2s into the scope of the SEC that need to come in and register as an exchange. So we're taking the come in and register that applied to centralized exchanges and moving them into the tech space in a way that I think is pretty unprecedented. In terms of, I mean, Coinbase in particular, were there was there anything in particular that really surprised you? Um, I mean, Jake, you talk about ex, you know people expecting this, but you know how serious is that? Putting Binance aside, but just kind of curious. A lot of people are talking about well, the you know the SEC kind of allowed them to go public, but that's not an endorsement of the business model. It's just simply they don't have an opinion on the quality of the companies and securities. They just simply approve something, and in the risk disclosure, it's like the SEC may deem some of the things that we list as securities that was a risk factor. So I'm curious, like, how you guys think about that? There seems to be a very polarizing view among lawyers on crypto Twitter. Yeah, I mean, look, I think um, as a matter of policy, it's kind of crazy that the SEC let Coinbase go public and then shows up to say the core of your business model is illegal. Um, I do think that, you know, the SEC's response is that's that's not what uh, the IPO process is for us. We're not reviewing every company to see if they're breaking the law. We're, you know, doing a check to make sure that they've complied with the listing standards. And I think technically that's true, right? So like as a formal matter, they sort of get away with that argument. But I just don't think it makes much sense from a, a policy perspective, right? The SEC knew what Coinbase's business was. And if they thought that the core of the business was illegal, then that should have been worked out in advance. So I think, you know, it just goes to show that the SEC, sadly, is not acting in good faith when it comes to crypto. And I think, you know, similarly, the other elements that Rebecca just mentioned, and and what did surprise some of us in the space was the SEC saying, Coinbase is acting as a broker because they have a non-custodial wallet that allows users to engage in transactions on DeFi protocols, right? We knew that the SEC doesn't like DeFi, but I think we thought they were attacking DeFi more through rulemaking rather than through enforcement. It is interesting to see them sort of work that issue into enforcement as well. Um, This sort of sparks for me a, a bigger strategic point that I wanted to make, which is we have been for years watching the SEC engage in regulation by enforcement, now I think a ban by enforcement. And we've done so in a totally defensive and reactive posture, right? We sort of sit around waiting to see what shot the SEC is going to take next, almost as if we're sitting ducks. And of course, the SEC, like uh, like 
uh, Jason was saying, has a strategy of picking off the low-hanging fruit first, building up precedent that benefits them, going after targets that either can't defend themselves because they lack resources, or targets where the fact pattern is as advantageous to the SEC as possible. That's how they pick their cases. I think that we in the industry need to stop being so defensive and we need to start going on offense. And this is something that I think you will see us at the Blockchain Association and Rebecca and me through the DeFi Education Fund, where we serve as board members. You're going to start seeing us doing this more, where instead of being sitting ducks, we're going to find cases that we think are beneficial to us, right? Fact patterns that paint the best narrative for crypto issues where we think the law is favorable to us, and then to get those cases proactively, offensively into the courts so we can start setting precedent that benefits us. This is called impact litigation, right? It's not new. It's been happening in crypto to, a, to some extent, right? Coin Center has brought a couple cases against the Treasury Department. Coinbase was involved in its own suit uh, against the SEC to force them to make a decision about this petition for rulemaking that they submitted last year. I think this is part of our strategy that we've underinvested in that you're going to see a lot more as time goes on. I, I think the other thing to underscore that builds off of Jake's point is Coinbase, I think, went public on either the last day of um, Chair Clayton's tenure or the first day of Gensler's tenure. And so the approval of Coinbase's uh, IPO was done under a different chair. And so what you have to think about is truly the separation of powers in the United States, some of which Jake is alluding to, like, the SEC is part of the general administrative administration, the administrative arm of the government. We know what uh, President Biden's stance is on crypto. He's made it clear in a number of things that have come out from the White House or his administration has. Um, but uh, and the courts, obviously, as you guys pointed out in your last week's roundup, are starting to take note and say, all right, we need to figure this out because there is this rulemaking, you're not paying attention to it, but you are going ahead and suing Coinbase. So the courts are meant to be a check on the administrative arm and on the legislative branch. And I know we're going to get into it too, but there's a lot going on in a positive direction in the legislative branch that may be hopefully counteracting some of what we're seeing out of the administrative branch right now in the United States. Yeah. Why don't we talk about that? Because I saw a great clip from the what seems to be General Counsel Robin Hood really getting behind Coinbase's argument, which is, we engaged with the SEC for months. I mean, it was almost a year and trying to make progress around the process to, you know, become compliant, to list, you know, these tokens. And then they kind of just went um, radio silent on us. And, and, and of course now Robin Hood has delisted a number of assets. And, you know, I'm curious, um, what is something that is positive around that? You know, like in this, Jake, to your point around offensive litigation, sounds like Coinbase is really you know, taking that approach as well to to kind of corner the SEC and say, guys, it's time for you to give us clarity of of what it is to come in and register because no one's actually been able to do that. Chainalysis is the premier blockchain data platform. Crypto businesses, financial institutions, government agencies, regulators, and policymakers all utilize Chainalysis's data and services to make sense of what's happening on the blockchain. Chainalysis demystifies crypto by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Square and Barclays and BNY Mellon. 
as regulators and policymakers work together to pass legislation that provides clarity for crypto businesses and protects consumers, they have the chance to do so with unparalleled data and research into the entire crypto ecosystem. Gain greater visibility and insight with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting chainalysis.com forward slash empire. If you are looking into compliance and you need blockchain compliance, there is no better place. It is chainalysis.com forward slash empire. I think that what Jake is saying is that, look, we... That this is not necessarily from the SEC side of things. We understand its position. I suppose there's the SEC will say or has brought out or definitely crypto skeptics have said, oh, you wanted regulatory clarity. You're getting it now from the SEC through many of these um, complaints, but you don't like this type of regulatory clarity. And I think one of the things that um, we keep sort of glossing over, including uh, with respect to some of the different types of entities that have gotten... Um, uh, approval through FINRA to be broker dealers is which which assets are actually securities? All of them, some of them. Last week's hearing, um, Chair Benham, who's the chair of the CFTC, when he was asked which digital assets are securities, did not answer the question. Um, you know, we can go through all the different contradictory statements between the different agencies and the states and things like that. Um, but I do think there's a threshold question to get over here. Um, and that needs to come, I think, through the legislative branch for sure, or at least through some clarity with the courts as to what the scope of the SEC's remit really is. Yeah, I, I, I wish I had a better answer for you. I think um, it's just very disappointing that the SEC has taken this approach where they say publicly, the exchanges must come in and register. And then behind closed doors, they literally refuse to offer any path toward coming in and registering. And there have been a, a number of exchanges. Robinhood is, is one that's been public about this and Coinbase as well. But I think many others who have gone in, not just to say to the SEC, look, we want to register, tell us how, but have actually brought proposals to the SEC of what that could look like, how you can square up the federal securities laws without needing any legislation, without needing any new rulemaking to get these exchanges registered and to allow them to keep trading these digital assets. And the SEC just refused refuses to engage in that process. And it's honestly, it's upsetting to me that this is how things work in the US right now, that this is how an agency, which is supposed to be protecting investors, but also facilitating capital formation and maintaining fair and efficient and orderly markets is literally refusing to do its job, refusing to carry out its mission to the point where so many people now are thinking about, should we just abandon the United States as a market for digital mm -hmm. assets? So I know that's not, that's just me venting there's there's like nothing constructive about that answer but that's just sort of where we are right now and so like talking practically coinbase's strategy is, is to corner them and say can they actually can, can a court go to the sec and say you know it's clear that you haven't done that do it and provide clarity uh and do you are you is that possible like what kind of probability would you ascribe to a scenario where the court demands that the sec rules that the sec has has not been doing it's it's functioning and and you know, somehow corners them to come out with the guidance. Like, is, is that feasible? Is that even possible? I mean, that's what the mandamus process is for. That's part of the checks and balances and the different mm -hmm. branches of government. If you asked me a week to 10 days ago, I would have said highly unlikely mandamus is an extraordinary remedy used very, very sparingly. Um, but 
after last week's order, which, you know, required Coinbase to respond, at least substantively to the briefs, I'd say there's definitely a greater likelihood. Um, and I think it's very hard given how public the chair of the SEC has been with respect to his statements, some of which contradict each other, um, and some of with, you know, how, um, how forward he's been about his personal views with respect to crypto assets and how there are contradictory statements. Sometimes the chair is speaking for the SEC. Sometimes he's not. Sometimes they won't tell you in court what their ideas are. Sometimes they will. Um, I think that some of that may just get into a quagmire that the courts see and say, like, no, we got to move forward here in a way that's actually, you know, meant to be. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, what's going on recently. You know, today, um, you know, the UK, you know, A16Z crypto, which is one of the more influential funds in the space, really announced that they were opening an office in London. And then, you know, uh, Prime Minister Zunak was like really rallying behind that. Um, you know, the Coinbase has gone out and met with and, and visited Dubai and, and, you know, visited London as well. And then Hong Kong has put out an open petition saying, look, if anyone wants to come here, you know, we're open for business and are, are welcoming. How much of that factors into, um, you know, the political landscape in the U.S.? You know, we talk about, of course, innovate. We've been beating kind of pounding the table saying innovations going elsewhere, capitals going elsewhere. But does that really is that really making an impact in D.C.? Like, are people feeling that? Is it going to matter? Yes, but only so much. I, I think, um, yes, it does have an effect. U.S. policymakers don't want to see U.S. companies going overseas, right? Their, their goal is to create jobs and to create tax revenue. And when you can show, not just say this is something that will happen, but actually show, look at Andreessen Horowitz, one of the largest venture capital firms in the world. They are going to London, and part of that is because of how the U.S. government is approaching this industry. I think that really does matter. There's, there's maybe two challenges, though, that limit the impact of that type of argument. One is it's still fairly unclear to policymakers in the US what the benefit of crypto is, right? We were talking before we started recording about use cases for crypto and how that is the one demand from all policymakers. And the problem is there isn't a mainstream, you know, widespread adopted use case for crypto where my grandparents are using a blockchain-based product or service every day. And what that means is when you say to a policymaker, well, all of this innovation is going to go offshore, they're like, okay, what innovation and why should I care about that? And I think right now that is a major challenge for us to articulate exactly what those benefits are. And yes, we can say, here are the amazing things that are coming. It would be so much better if we could actually say, here's what is being done right now today that we will lose if we don't you know, address these concerns. The second and maybe bigger issue, though, is the SEC is an independent agency, and Gary Gensler basically gets to do whatever he wants. And yes, there is some element of oversight from Congress, but really Congress can't make him do anything he doesn't want to do. And so we're in this situation where I don't think the SEC's approach reflects the overall view of the U.S. government, which is a massive entity that does not have a single perspective, right? It's extremely idiosyncratic, but it's very difficult for us to affect the you know, viewpoint of a single agency head who is independent, who has it in his mind that politically it is advantageous to ban this industry through enforcement or rulemaking or by whatever means necessary to, it seems, advance his own political career. So there's just not a whole lot that we can do, I think, to, to push back on that. 
I will say just to talk about this use case idea, the one thing that may have been overlooked last week is that the uh, Innovation, Data and Commerce Subcommittee of the Energy and Commerce Committee. So it is the, the you know committee of Congress that is really focused on gr economic growth in the United States, held a hearing just on building blockchains. That's what it was entitled and all the various use cases for Web3 and distributed ledger technologies. And it gave people the opportunity to start articulating what the actual use case was and why there's a benefit right like in web 2 your privacy and your data and all of those things are compromised and and especially that's important for the energy and commerce committee which is very very focused on consumer protection including for um data privacy and why it's good and i think it is worth um and maybe we can link it in the show notes the opening statement by the chair of that subcommittee chair bill Arrakis, was um, so surprising to hear from uh, a legislator that we haven't heard before, who really said like, this isn't literally verbatim said this isn't a crypto casino. That's not what's going on here. There is a broader use and we need to start that conversation in DC, because we've only talked about the financial aspects of it. And we see everything that's going on. So I think it's worth um, talking about and understanding that the broader conversation about use cases is starting to happen in DC. But as Jake said, there's the I think the SEC narrative has just really overtaken mm -hmm. a lot of everybody's psyche and what people are focused on right now. Was this the uh, I saw some clips about Ryan Wyatt, your counterpart, mm -hmm. um, who was talking about, look, I come from YouTube. I was highly successful there. I went to Polygon because I saw you were right behind him. Uh, yeah. So maybe we'll link that. That was a great I, I thought stuff like that really is impactful because when you see someone that was successful in industry come into the space, it really legitimizes the space. Um, so, I mean. I definitely agree with you. It, it feels like at some point you, when someone becomes so obnoxious and goes to an extreme, it really helps other parts of the ecosystem really understand how irrational some of these arguments are and how much damage it's creating. Um, which leads me to the next topic of conversation, which is the McHenry Thompson bill, which is something that is perhaps being overlooked because there's so much noise right now and focus on Coinbase and Binance. But I mean, there's a mega thread by one of the folks at Paradigm, uh, Justin Slaughter. Uh, but we'd like to kind of just talk about that a bit, your interpretation of that. I know it's a very comprehensive bill, so we're not going to cover it all in this uh, segment, but maybe just the, the highlights and, and your um, thoughts and analysis on that would be would be great. Yeah, it's, it is extremely important. I do think it's been overlooked. And honestly, partly that might have been by design. That may be why the SEC brought those suits, because the SEC does not like this bill, because what the bill does is it creates exactly the type of regulatory clarity that we've been asking for all along, right? What it says is, yes, there are legitimate concerns about risk in the digital asset markets, right? That could be risk about um, token creators who have privileged access to information that they ought to disclose to people who are buying or investing in tokens in order to understand their investments, right? Valid concern. Maybe valid concerns about market manipulation or wash trading or you know, other market integrity issues in secondary markets, right? All valid concerns that we should address. What this bill does is it creates a framework that actually addresses those risks, but in a way that does not sacrifice the benefits of decentralization and disintermediation that are at the core of this entire industry, right? Something we've been asking for for a really long time. I think it's noteworthy that this bill is a joint effort between the House Financial Services and House Agriculture Committees, which are the two most important committees in the House for our issues. And historically, we've seen proposals that are sort of disjointed between the two, right? The, the House Ag Committee oversees the CFTC, financial services oversees the SEC, the turf 
war between those two agencies over jurisdiction for crypto has sort of bled into in the past the interaction between those two committees. Similarly in the House, uh, excuse me, similarly in the Senate between the Senate Banking Committee and the Senate Agriculture Committee. So here we have those two committees coming together and saying, hey, the only way we're going to figure this out is if we work together and come up with one bill that addresses both agencies and what their jurisdiction is. And I think this is by far the most serious effort that we've seen from Congress to, you know, to try to come up with a, a comprehensive solution for that. I think it's right, by the way, for us not to get too far into the details of what the bill does, because one thing that's been really clear is the draft that came out is a discussion draft. It's not Congress showing up to say, we figured this all out. This is what it's going to be, whether you like it or not. They really are taking seriously the need to discuss this with industry and with the public. They've been very open to suggestions for changes. And I think that this bill will develop and mature as time goes on to the point where all of us should be absolutely in favor of it. So it's a very exciting and important development. I think the one thing I would add is it addresses a lot of the realities of the way the industry works, right? There's a concept in there called end user distribution. Those are airdrops. Um, and I, when I was reading it, I was like, oh, airdrops and wrote it next to it. I mean, it's really trying to address a lot of the ways the in, it's it's not a look. I think a lot of what we've seen from the SEC is square peg, round hole type of stuff. And this is really meant to fit what we know into um, a lot of the regulatory frameworks that we have, but also expand them out a bit, thinking about concurrent jurisdiction between the SEC and the CFTC, which does happen in the traditional financial world from time to time too, um, but also really dealing with how capital formation has worked, super important, as Jake mentioned a number of times from the SEC's perspective, um, and also really trying to break out some of the information asymmetries that people have, I think, talked about um, and the industry between when you raise from VCs versus when you do an airdrop and things like that. So I think it does really, I mean, it's, I think it is a uh, Herculean effort that was put into mm -hmm. it to really piece apart, uh, but then also put back together in a regulatory framework, the ways the industry has been working to date. One of the things that caught my attention was this idea of, um, you know, this 20% ownership uh, that seems to be really important if a team has 20% ownership. Um, one thing that I want to get your thoughts on is um, this kind of definition of of a decentralized organization, um, which said, and I'll quote, this is kind of a broad definition, excludes any organization that is directly engaged in an activity that requires registration with the SEC or CFTC. Is that like problematic if the SEC holds a hard stance that everyone that is engaging in, in this industry needs to go and register with them? And so it I'm curious if this like supersedes that or how would kind of the SEC fit into that because it could be really kind of difficult. It, it's a great question. Honestly, I'm still thinking through that. I, you know, I read that definition for the first time 10 days ago and haven't had a huge amount of time to sort of parse what that means. I'm, I'm really curious what Rebecca thinks about this. I guess what I'll say is I think conceptually Anything is better than what we have now, right? What we have now basically is the CFTC's perspective in the Ukidao case, which is literally anybody who's doing yes, anything yeah. in coordination whatsoever should be treated as if it is a typical entity, right? An unincorporated association and regulated accordingly. That's 
crazy and not workable in any way. So I think it is important for us to have some kind of definition that addresses what does it mean when you have unaffiliated, dispersed individuals who are acting in coordination in some way, but in a very different way from a traditional corporation or entity that should be regulated in a traditional way. I think where this becomes confusing, at least for me, is the concept of a decentralized organization. And I've always sort of felt this way about the term DAO, where it's like, if you're an organization, then how are you decentralized? Unless all we mean is a corporation, which in many ways is already decentralized. And then sort of where you put the regulatory burden in that context, I think, you know, just gets pretty confusing. So uh, hopefully I'll have a better answer for you once mm -hmm. I've thought through that more. Maybe Rebecca's uh, got a better one. Yeah, I think this is, I think this is because it's a discussion draft. I think, um, the sum of that activity actually falls properly under the exclusions um, a portion in, I think, 309 and 407 for exclusions for ancillary activities. I think it probably fits well in there because I do not believe, given how well-intentioned and thoughtful this bill is, that they want everybody who's participating in a DAO to come in and register. Another thing that was interesting is they go on to define digital assets and um, it covers, quote-unquote, fungible digital representations you read to the end of that and are they not talking about NFTs? Is, is that fair to say that, you know, NFTs kind of are in the safe ground uh, and, and just kind of like not really. Okay. And, and both of you are nodding. So I'll just, yeah. Yeah. Not I don't, I don't think this is meant to, I mean, look, the other thing you can say about this bill is it lines up for the most part with how other countries have been approaching regulating the crypto asset space mostly uh, intermediaries, also issuances. That's very much the case in Mika already. That is what the UK has put out. And that's what a lot of other regulatory proposals look like. Japan has already been regulating centralized intermediaries for a while now in the crypto asset space and leave some of the harder technological issues, DeFi and NFTs, for further down the road. There's a DeFi study in here. Um, and that's very, very consistent with how other countries across the world are handling regulating crypto. I totally agree. I um, I think a, a benefit of this bill is that it doesn't try to do everything all at once, right? It doesn't make perfect the enemy of good. I don't think we have any idea what NFTs are going to be in five years. And the idea that we would put NFTs into a bill like this and think we've like figured it out in 2023 is, is you know, not an intelligent approach. And so major credit to the, the authors of the bill um, for sort of understanding that. And similarly with DeFi, as Rebecca said, you know, this isn't trying to work out how do we regulate decentralized protocols for the exchange of, of digital assets. I, I don't think we have a really good sense of how you address risk in that type of environment. I will say, though, the way you phrase the question, Santi, is does that mean NFTs are safe? And in a, in a sense, actually, it means the opposite, which is like mm -hmm. if NFTs don't get clarified in this bill, then is That's the next fair. thing the SEC comes out to say is like board apes are securities or something mm -hmm. like that. And then there's no legislation that protects them. So there is sort of a trade off it to does, saying yeah. we're going to we're going to clarify this, leave the rest uncertain, and then we'll keep dealing with that uncertainty as time goes on. That's such an interesting observation, Dig, because I think for a long time we've been like now it's very clear what their intention is. So like now you really want to find everything. Um, I want to go back to something that you said earlier, which is this uh, end user distributions, i.e. airdrops. And something that really caught my attention was this idea that, and I'll quote again, you know, that these end user distributions, i.e. airdrops, are neither investment contracts nor interstate security transactions. I mean, I think this might be one of the most important and pro kind of 
things in this in this particular working draft because then it really opens up the possibility for one U.S. investors and consumers to get access to airdrops and and that has not been the case for such a long time. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think what we saw very early on was airdrops were very ubiquitous. It went to everybody. I think we saw then a shift to specifically excluding U.S. persons from airdrops from a lot of people um, or from a lot of different projects. Uh, and this, to your point, would would allow U.S. persons to be able to receive uh, tokens via airdrops. Um, but look, as Jake said, this is a discussion draft and there's going to be a lot of... Um, a lot of negotiation over it, not just in terms of industry and uh, Congress, which, by the way, I will say I give a lot of credit to um, uh, Chairman McHenry's team and others, but they have been very open to feedback uh, and they are hoping that people give them feedback on it. Um, But there will also be a lot of negotiation within these two subcommittees and these two larger committees and then, uh, you know, in the House and the Senate themselves as to what is even viable. So I think this is a very forward thinking bill. And I think it does open up and meet a lot of the objectives of both the SEC and the CFTC, but they may not remain that way, you know, when we see it even get passed out of committee. Hmm. Yeah, this is a this is an all GOP bill, it looked like. So so the bill may pass the House, but it obviously needs some serious Democratic support to, to really get pushed through. Um, is that just the unfortunate reality of today is that crypto has gotten so politicized that it's now a you know, pro pro crypto equals Republican, anti crypto equals Democrat. Is that just how, how things go moving forward? Well, hopefully not. And one of the things I think the industry uh, has done well at sometimes, but may have fallen off a bit. Um, when Jake was heavily involved in the infrastructure bill, everybody was calling their representatives, and there was a lot of grassroots movement. And I think the industry sort of Uh, raises itself at times that feel very existential and then sort of goes quiet again. But I'll tell you, when I am on the Hill a lot, I do hear people say like, nobody's (laughs) calling me saying they care about this. Uh, And I think it's Mm. really, really important to put calls into your representatives, not one time and not when it's existential, but over and over, including if you live in a district with um, Democratic representatives, uh, because you need the reps all to hear that you care about this, that there's innovation here. It impacts you, your job, because what they're supposed to be doing and their job is, is to serve their constituents. So if they think this is an issue that their constituents care about, they will dig deeper into it. And then I will say, if you're engaging with your representatives, don't use technical jargon. I will say, Mm. I also heard a lot on the Hill last week, like, stop making it so complicated for us. Uh, stop using words like airdrop and um, user distribution. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stop saying smart contract. And honestly, what I have started saying is like, same internet, different backend. And just mm. showing, literally showing people like, look, this is the way you engage in something. Do you see this website? And people say yes. And I'll say, this is a front end and the light turns on because when people talk about front end regulation or things like that, people don't necessarily know what it means because we've been using highly technical jargon mm-hmm. for a very long time. Yeah. Well, there's uh, the documents, 162 pages. I don't intend to go through everything. The, the last section I want to talk talk on uh, about and then kind of get your thoughts around how this compared to Mika and some other kind of progressive regulation across the world is this idea of digital commodities. They basically said you know, digital commodities or digital assets that are issued through an end user distribution or that are related to a working certified decentralized network. The problem is that then the SEC, I think it's a jurisdiction of the SEC to deem what is and is not a decentralized network. And as we've seen historically, they've been kind of dancing around that. 
But apparently, I think my understanding is this is still a, a very positive step forward because the SEC has, I think, when someone would go into register, they have, I think, like 30 days or so to reject that certification um, and provide kind of a detailed analysis. So in some ways, at least you're allowing them to like set a precedent of do's and don'ts, um, right? Which would be really useful, at least for from a clarity perspective. Is, is that a fair kind of interpretation? Yeah, look, I think there is some risk to it. But one, the bill does uh, define decentralization. It does define a functional network. Uh, it does set out timelines for what you're supposed to um, and when you're supposed to hear back from the SEC. And the other thing that the bill doesn't explicitly say, but is true for everything um, Ultimately, you could appeal to the courts if you don't like the decision. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's the court's job to interpret the law and they'll look at this legislation and go from there. So, you know, all hope is not lost. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I would say this is one of the sections of the bill that will likely be revised as time goes on. I think this is one of the most important issues. And look, this, this issue lives on a spectrum of how much should Congress delegate to the agencies. And in a way, this also becomes something of a partisan issue where Democrats in general are more comfortable delegating authority to the administrative state, so to speak, right? Letting agencies make decisions, whereas Republicans tend to be less willing to allow unelected officials in the administration to make those types of decisions. And I think as Rebecca described, the, the discussion draft tries to draw a compromise where it says we are going to delegate authority to the SEC, which look, I mean, maybe they need some authority in order to do their jobs, but there's going to be some checks and balances on that, some requirements so that we don't live in the type of world we do now where the SEC can just say, no, we think all digital assets are securities and there's basically no recourse whatsoever. That's said, I don't know that we should accept any type of delegation that allows the SEC, since we know that they would rather crypto not exist in the US, that allows them to, to sort of take that same position and then just justify it through legal loopholes and then put us back in court for another three or five years trying to argue with them about it. I don't think that's a good solution. I know. I, the one thing I'll say that go back to it is like, the policy changes as the administration changes too. And so having this very clear set of, now it feels very existential to delegate that to the SEC, mm -hmm. but you don't know how things are going to go forward in the future. And the interesting thing is I heard uh, former Chair Clayton speak at a big conference last Bloomberg week. Bloomberg Invest. I thought it was Bloomberg. That's right. Yeah, I think it was, yeah. Yeah. And uh, look, he still says, I believe in the agency, mm -hmm. I believe in its mission, but there are there's one value here and there are two um, ways to try to bring this all into compliance that may not be uh, enforcement related. And so I think um, that even though uh, he was obviously very aggressive going after ICOs and some other, I think as we as um, Jason alluded to earlier, he had some early enforcement actions like Ether Delta, mm -hmm. um, which I would say was more centralized. They had a centralized order book. They had, I mean, the founders held the admin keys and stuff like that. But even though he did, you know, sort of start this, I think that people's thinking does evolve. And so when you look at the bill, you can't only look at it in the vacuum of what's going to mm -hmm. happen today, but in a much larger, broader, long-term context mm -hmm. of clarity. Has this been like, I mean, I, I think one of the things that I've appreciated is that Gensler is also kind of unpopular with other non-crypto people because it, it seems like he's he, he hasn't addressed kind of core issues, uh, ESG and some other components. I'm not too familiar, but at least it's a sentiment that I get. Talking more broadly about the agency and the kind of the checks and balances, has it been a problem historically where the SEC has overstepped 
and become problematic for other industries? I mean, we talk about like, I think a gold ETF, but that was like way back in the 40s or 50s, I believe. And then the UK kind of passed it and then they passed it. But why hasn't like no one kind of thought about like maybe kind of like ring fencing or having more checks and balances on this delegation of authority of the SEC? I don't. I don't know that the SEC has ever acted like this to any other industry. And maybe I'm just too young to remember an instance like this. But like, look, people have always complained about the SEC. They're a regulator. Industries always complain about their regulators. Mm -hmm. That's not new. And I'm sure there were complaints about Sarbanes-Oxley and about Dodd-Frank and all these kinds of things, right? But nothing like this, where the SEC is literally trying to ban an industry without Congress having ever said anything about how the industry should be regulated. Mm -hmm. And during the course of Congress discussing legislation that would regulate in a healthy way that industry. I think we're like way outside the realm of of any experience or precedent on this kind of thing. Um, but I don't know, maybe Rebecca, who's, who knows more about financial regulation than me, will tell you a difference. No, no, I've been saying this, you know, very recently to people for a long time. Like, I mean, as a litigator and regulatory enforcement lawyer, lawyer I've just never seen anything like it. Jake's right. Nobody's ever like, oh, the SEC is really really happy to get this, you know, subpoena from them or anything like that, even outside of just the um, crypto context. I was litigating financial um, services uh, issues for a long, long time. But uh, this is this is unprecedented. Um, And especially just to go back to something we talked about earlier, in the context of the world isn't going about this the same way. So I mean, there are real concerns, the rest of you know, regulators across the globe are talking about them, including international regulators like FATF and the Bank of International Settlements and things like that. Um, but this is just an outlier as far as mm-hmm. everything else goes. It does feel super bizarre that on one end, you have kind of the McHenry bill that is thoughtful. Congress, there's people within kind of in both camps and houses, whatnot, trying to like make progress. But then there's an agency that's really kind of like a stubborn child. It just says no to everything. And in stark contrast, like, I guess if you're a listener and you don't care about crypto, but you're in another industry, well, this really makes you think at minimum, we should just rethink the, the checks and balances and the delegation of authority to an agency because it can, as as they are being problematic to crypto today, they can go after and look, if you're in the marijuana industry, I mean, they approve a bunch of IPOs. Like if you're in uh, some other industry that maybe down the road, it becomes problematic, then, then it, this impacts you a lot. I feel like there. I feel like there have been other times that um, administrative bodies have, have overstepped, like uh, like maybe um, DOJ against Microsoft in the late eighties or late late 90s or like uh, European Commission was uh, criticized for like what they've done with um like the antitrust cases against big tech or FCC and net neutrality. But in every one of those instances, there's like this strong why that they have, and the only why that I hear from the SEC is protecting consumers, which. Uh, like fundamentally doesn't make sense in, in my opinion, but I guess that's just my opinion. Like it feels like those other cases, you could argue there's been this this overreach, but there's also a strong why. Um, yeah, it feels like that's missing here. I mean, I think the SEC's response would be something along the lines of this is these are securities that are now being offered to retail, which we don't typically allow except in very, very, very narrow circumstances and through, um, you know, a, a no. very clear system where there are no conflicts and you know exactly how it works. And so there's none of that here. And so since there's been this access to retail and there's been a lot of thoughts of these get 
get rich quick schemes. We're really just trying to, that's why they keep saying we're trying to protect investors, but to go back to, you know, the issue of, well, there's been a massive drop in Coinbase stock um, when the SEC did approve, right? Their S1 and their IPO and things like that. So the question is like, what way are you protecting Mm. consumers is the real issue. Yeah, also, there's a massive drop in tech stocks. Like Peloton's down from 150 bucks to eight dollars. You know, like I don't know. Lyft Lift is down 95. percent right. So. right, and look, we saw this in the dot com bubble like 20 yeah. years ago, right? I mean, this in a way we're just sort of reliving history to to an extent, although in obviously a much more and and in some ways very unprecedented way. Look, I think also ultimately it's all politics, and there are a lot of people who really hate crypto, and I think that's mm-hmm. what. This, you know, we call them skeptics, crypto skeptics. They're not skeptics, right? They hate crypto. They think that crypto has no purpose to exist except to enrich a class of quote unquote crypto bros who are people who they despise and don't want to see succeed, right? Everyone knows like some guy who bought Bitcoin in 2013, who was a total jerk about it for the last 10 years. And now they're getting some schadenfreude by seeing the SEC, you know, try to take down crypto. Mm -hmm. And I do think that in many ways is what we're reacting to. And that's why this issue of use cases is so important. If you give someone a product or service that makes a difference in their lives that uses this technology, that will change everything. And I think Mm -hmm. just the same way as with the rise of the internet, where it was really easy to make fun of pets.com or whatever in, you know, 2000, but then all of a sudden when everyone is living their whole lives on the internet, no one is saying Mm -hmm. the internet is a, is a fad or a scam or anything like that. Same thing with mobile phones, same thing with basically every type of technology. We just need to get to that point where we get past the hobbyists and into, into the mainstream. I guess that, And to Jake's point, if we are all living our lives on the internet, do we want to turn it all over to these centralized intermediaries, right? There are lots of things that happen on the internet that you don't even think about. Maps, taking your location, right? This is something Mm -hmm. that Ryan talked about at that hearing last week and giving over your email and giving over, you know, buying things on the internet. Once you start combining all of those things, there is so much about you that lives on the internet in a proprietary way that can be commoditized and all of those things. And look, we've all gotten used to that. But the question is, is that the right way to live our lives on the internet? And is that what people really want to do? Um, I think there will be some exciting things about use cases coming out. So mm-hmm. that will be a, a great development that we can all use and leverage. Um, we very publicly stated a few months ago that we're putting out an open and transparent database of use cases. So look mm-hmm. out for that. But the other thing I'll say is, um, you know, this is an enhancement of the internet. And so if you think about the utility that the internet brings, we should be talking about it as bringing back user privacy, right, right. to the to our use of the internet. Yeah, that's such a good point. I mean, I think at the end of the day, like the music industry, right, Napster got clamped down, but then it just became such a powerful, ubiquitous force that you just have to accept it and then work around. Do we need some regulation? Absolutely. Do we? Can we protect consumers? Can we have better information disclosures? Like, absolutely. But unfortunately, you know, all of this enforcement, you know, uh, actions by the SEC are very distracting and, and detract us from talking about the most important stuff. Um, I guess I want to get your thoughts on the state of the bill relative to kind of Mika and some other regulatory processes in 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 Dubai or the United Arab Emirates and Hong Kong some other jurisdictions like how does this compare to some of these other um you know legislations well Mika was just passed into 
into law uh, and voted on by the parliament. So that's moving forward and will be enacted and all of the things that come with it, which means promulgating additional rules from the European Banking Authority and the European Securities Markets Association and things like that. So that's well on its way. I think everybody's been looking to Mika as this, oh, panacea, let's all move ourselves to the EU. I think it's important to remember that there are going to be these ancillary pieces of legislation like the Data Act and the Transfer of Funds Regulation and the AMLR, which is anti-money laundering, that may make things much more restrictive for crypto. Um, and I think there was a tweet, maybe by Patty Hansen from Circle a few weeks ago about Notwithstanding all of those side pieces of legislation, Mika has made it very attractive and investment from VCs in European countries has gone up by a lot in the last quarter or something like that. Um, nobody else has a piece of legislation, you know, moving quickly through. I would say the UK is one of the ones who are most further out ahead, but they're still in the consultation process. The UAE still in the consultation process. Hong Kong. Japan, all of those still, a lot of them are in the consultation process for certain types of legislation. As I said, Japan has had good uh, yeah. regulation of, of, of um, uh, exchanges for a long time. Um, but I will say, yeah, the UK is pretty far out ahead and has been pretty vocal about how much they do want to be not just a crypto asset hub, but a, a tech hub. Uh, and I think that's really important to just keep in mind, given the advent of AI and all the different pieces of new tech that's coming out. It's early in this game, right? I, I think, yes, other jurisdictions are doing better and moving faster than the U.S., but I don't think it's all over, right? Like, we were tweeting about um, about the SEC actions last week, and a lot of the comments were like, the U.S. has lost, the game is over, everyone is leaving. I don't think that's true, right? I think we're getting outplayed in the first quarter of this game, but it's still very unclear how this is going to play out. And I still think there's great opportunity in the US to get this right. So yeah, the UK, I think to me is, is sort of out in front right now, but that doesn't mean that we can't, uh, you know, catch up, so to speak. I think, um, like we were saying before, really on a decade time scale, we will look back at these years as like that really weird period of time where we were arguing about whether the internet was a scam or not. And, <laughs> and it's, you know, way too early to, to sort of draw conclusions about where this innovation will happen or who's going to be out front in the end. Yeah. The one thing I'll say just as a build onto that though, is nobody is setting up in the U S anymore. Nobody. And everybody is, is thinking about moving themselves offshore. I know people last week and even the week before the Binance and um, Coinbase complaints came out that told all their U.S. employees were shutting down the U.S. You have six months to find a new job. Um, best of luck. So there's a lot of that actually happening. Um, yeah. Does it mean it's all over? No, but I mean, there's a pretty clear exodus and there's not a single new software developer. And, and to Jake's point early on, like people are still building, things are still moving forward. Um, they're not doing it here. No, absolutely all. not. Absolutely not. I mean, I think in my prior investment, I don't think any of them have a substantial presence or any presence in the US. You have majors like Galaxy now looking to go overseas, Coinbase. Uh, so many projects are just going elsewhere, not to Canada, certainly because Canada is like not very different. Uh, but they're going to the UK, they're going to Dubai, they're going to Hong Kong and, and Singapore. And so, you know, I guess in, in, in this assessment of a timeline, how fast or not things w would move, I mean, you know, uh, Chairman Gensler has another 18 months in, in office. Assume he finishes that. Uh, you, we have elections. What is it next year? You know, what would be your kind of most optimistic um, scenario operating kind of assumption for, for the U.S.? 
I think the most optimistic timescale would be to say, we can get this market structure legislation done this Congress, meaning before the end of next year. Along with it, there's another draft bill that we haven't talked about much, which is um, stablecoin legislation, right? So regulating centralized custodial issuers of stablecoins, I think an extremely important, maybe not the most exciting, but an extremely important part of, of this industry and these markets. It's entirely possible we could get both of those done by the end of this Congress next year. There are definitely some political challenges to that as as Jason was saying earlier, these bills by and large have support from Republicans in the House. They could get out of the House. They could then die in the Senate without even getting a hearing if there isn't enough Democratic support in the House to send a signal to the Senate that this is important and it's a bipartisan effort, right? So really important that we keep these things bipartisan. I do think it's more likely that the legislation will make some progress, this Congress, but then we're going to have the presidential election next year and nothing will get done because of that. Um, you know, DC sort of freezes up starting at least in like June of next year, because everyone is just focused on, on the election. And then in 2025, we're going to have a new presidential term, maybe a new president, maybe not, but either way, there's going to be a transition. That means new leadership comes in. We can all cross our fingers and hope that Chair Gensler does not go into a second Biden term. And then we have a whole new Congress and who knows what can happen in terms of control of Congress. So I think it's likely that we're still talking about this legislation in 2025, 2026. That's probably the same timeline for the litigation. So just as an example, the SEC brought its enforcement action against Ripple over for XRP and its security status in December of 2020. We're now almost three years ahead, and we still haven't gotten a ruling even on the motion for summary judgment. And it could go on even past that to a trial or up to appeal at the circuit court and even to the Supreme Court. So I think it's mm -hmm. likely that in 2025, 2026, we're still dealing with these Binance and Coinbase enforcement actions mm -hmm. and whatever else the SEC decides to throw at us. So I think that's, um, that's the most reasonable timeline is maybe by the end of next year, but more likely two, three years, we'll still be talking about this. On that point, I mean, I, um, you know, when they go after majors, you know, Binance purportedly is earmarked over a billion to fight this. Uh, Coinbase is also very well capitalized and has a pretty good bench to go in and fight this and, and even be proactive and aggressive in litigation. The SEC uh, has continuously asked for more resources uh, with the but this debt ceiling. I mean, I don't know how much they actually got. I and mean, I know the IRS cut back significantly um, in their proposal to expand kind of that number of staffers. Um, how, like the SEC seem, do you, would it, would it be fair to say that the SEC is spreading itself too thin when it goes after kind of two major players in the space? Do they have the resources? I mean, they're fighting uh, ripple. Uh, what is it? Grayscale uh, and Coinbase, Coinbase and Binance, potentially others, but like those four feel like, you know, those four entities have plenty of resources to kind of draw this out and kind of see it through. I'm curious if you believe in that, the, how important that is. I'm just kind of curious. They have resources to do, let's say, four big, uh, you know, cases that you're talking about, five. But that's, they're not stopping there, right? As we talked about at the beginning, right, like yeah. there's going to be more. Uh, as Jake talked about, there may be impact litigation. They may be flooded with some impact litigation. So you're right. I think resource constraints is really important to think about uh, as things move forward. And as the industry reacts, 
um, to, you know, what, what is coming out of the SEC to think about the fact that what something looks like on its face may not necessarily be everything that's going on behind the scenes or tell the full story. So I think that's really, really important. I guess uh, we've talked about Binance, Coinbase. We've talked about kind of Mika and some other jurisdictions and the McHenry Bell. Uh, what else has caught your eye in the regulatory kind of landscape recently or stuff that you want to cover in this segment? It's kind of funny because there's so much going on all the time and it's so hard to digest all of it. And even for us, you know, Rebecca and me working in policy full time, it's like every day there's something new that happens and it's hard to keep track of. I guess one other thing um, for folks to keep in mind is a throwback to the infrastructure bill, which we mentioned earlier. So as people may remember, the infrastructure bill had new provisions in the tax code that basically said a whole bunch of people who were not doing tax reporting right now should be doing tax reporting. And one of the issues there was, does that only apply to someone like Coinbase and Binance, right? A centralized exchange that has relationships with customers who honestly should be getting some tax report from, from that entity to make their own, um, you know, uh, experience paying taxes easier. The big question though was, what about DeFi, right? What about a non-custodial front-end provider? Do they have to do tax reporting? Meaning do they have to KYC all the users of the front-end and then file a report with the IRS saying what the user's transactions were? And until now, those rules have not gone into effect because the IRS has said, we are going to do rulemaking over what the definition of broker, the key term in the infrastructure bill is. And they were supposed to do that rulemaking like a year and a half ago. And every time we check in, it's like, yeah, it's right around the corner. It's going to come out next week. And then it never comes out. And we heard this again in May. It was supposed to come out in May. And we're still waiting for that. But I think that's sort of the next big shoe to drop is this question of tax compliance in crypto. It's a big issue and one that we have to figure out. And I think when the day comes that the IRS publishes a 600-page you know, draft of, of broker rulemaking or something like that, then we're going to spend a whole lot of time talking about that and trying to figure out how do we make tax uh, reporting make sense with crypto. I guess both of you spend meaningful time in DC. <clears throat> What's the overall sentiment there? Like I've heard obviously that there are folks um, within these agencies staff that is actually pro crypto has spent a lot of time thinking about it. I've heard also that, you know, there's kind of disagreements within that people are losing credibility. I I'm curious, like how you guys have observed uh, the, the you know kind of the sentiment in dc evolve and change over time and how it is today yeah so even though i'm a doing full-time policy i'm still a lawyer so the answer is it depends <laughs> and and it depends on who you talk to and i think all of the points you're making santi are right there are some people who are and probably always were and remain skeptical there are people who've spent time learning about the technology, including within some of the regulatory agencies uh, in ways that may surprise you. Uh, and not just at the SEC, but even broader agency uh, perspectives. Um, and there is at least an understanding of the tech and also of a lot of the nuances we talk about, right? Where lots of money, people talk about money laundering happening through DeFi. They understand it happens there, but I think we saw in the DeFi Treasury report, they said most of the money laundering happens in TradFi still and with 
you know, national currencies or fiat and things like that. So I think um, it depends on who you talk to. There can be nuanced understanding. I think the other thing that may surprise you is that there are definitely people who've been longtime crypto skeptics who at least understand that there needs to be some form of regulation and may be turning to what that looks like, whether it be the McHenry bill or something else that they themselves want to work on or put out. But I think there's, there is a slow, broader understanding that there may need to be something. I think the vigilant crypto skeptics aren't you're not going to change them um and none of the arguments we're all putting out oh overseas or this or any of that it is going to change people i think the thing that cannot be forgotten and that i think we all don't want to talk about is ftx and particularly that sam was so prominent on the hill it's not just ftx imploded it's that sam was on the hill all the time and at least when i'm there i hear about it Oh, well, Sam said similar things when you're talking about compliance or something like that. Or, oh, we heard that from Sam, too. I mean, not necessarily to me, but there is the sting isn't gone. I think we all wish it was. And I think, um, you know, there are some people who I'll give them a lot of credit have said, we understand that was a fraud, uh, you know, very traditional to something like a Madoff or something else. Um, but that I just think, especially given how close he was and how much time he spent on the Hill, in congressional offices, there is a lot of sting to it that has not been taken away yet. Yeah, I, I can't underscore that point enough. And I think we in the industry stopped talking about Sam like five months ago, because why would we? We all understood what happened and we didn't want anything to do with him. But his, um, his sort of image looms large in DC. And again, everything in the end comes down to politics. And the question is, what is the benefit? What is the opportunity for a policymaker to be pro-crypto? And basically what they're saying to us is like, we don't hear about your issue very much. Like Rebecca said, no one calls us to tell us they care about this. We're not seeing it making a meaningful impact in, you know, in the market or in the world. We're not seeing people using this. And we don't want to take the risk of being aligned with your industry, given what happened to all the people who, uh, you know, were sort of in bed with, with Sam. And mm -hmm. so I think we're still fighting through that. I think we will fight through that. Like one of the best things that has happened recently is Rebecca deciding to do full-time policy work, even though she's still a lawyer, because it takes people like Rebecca Rebecca spending some time in DC explaining this stuff to people. The yeah. problem is just like Rebecca's one person and we need an army of Rebecca's in order to get that done. And that requires a lot more resources than we have um, mm -hmm. in, in sort of like the crypto policy infrastructure, right? We're getting outspent a hundred to one by the banking industry. Mm -hmm. And obviously they're not our friends. And so that's just a big mm -hmm. challenge that we're, that we're up against as well. Yeah. Well, we can go on and on. I know this is going to be part of a broader segment. I mean, bring you guys every month to talk about the latest developments in regulation. I think this was a great episode covering a lot of the stuff that is super topical. And, and I think it's always great to hear your opinion uh, and interpretation. So in summary, it sounds like, you know, if, if people listening, they, they want to understand how they could help. And I heard you say, look, we need to be more proactive about showing people the positive use cases of this technology. So if you're an artist and you've benefited from this, if you're a collector, if you're, you know, I think these are some of the stories and anecdotes really help at the local level, at the you know broader level, of course. And also, it sounds like there's going to be a plenty of opportunity to really kind of work through this 162-page draft of um, McHenry Thompson bill. That if you're in industry, you could certainly like engage and participate in in, in refining this working kind of draft of sorts. Um, so those, I think, are the two kind of takeaways for me, at least, uh, for people that want to and your causes and the industry as a whole. Um, 
so I don't know if there's anything else you would like kind of close with, uh, but I think this is really good. Good. I mean, I think Jake and I put out a lot of what we sort of talked about as what are the takeaways for the industry? Call your reps, think about how you can be proactive, call Jake if you want to ask um, or reach out to him. If you want to figure out how you can support any efforts that BA is doing in DC um, and, you know, in the courts in a broader way. Um, and I think the other thing not to be super cheesy is like, keep building fine if you're not going to do it here, but, but keep building. I think for those of us who have been in the industry for a long time. Um, and I think one of the reasons I really did turn to full-time policy is I'm a real believer. Um, and if you are, and if you're, building something great just keep building it it's it it may feel rougher before it feels brighter um you know as jake said we're really getting into it now and i don't think that the coinbase and binance complaints were the end of what we may see uh from the sec but i think just keep moving forward and maybe stop fudding on on twitter i would love if people could stop doing mm -hmm. that but that's just my mm -hmm. own personal <laughs> oh rebecca i'll tell you wishful thinking you know the flood's going to continue but i i will say you know one of the treats of my job is to get to talk to so many of the founders that i get to invest in and i always am reminded that they're always usually way calmer than most people and they just keep their head down you know talking to stani for so long you know all these folks like they just have their head down and they they know that what their north star is and they keep building and i think that's honestly people like that are really what drives us forward because then it shows up in the use case and and you know that's kind of the most important thing so i agree with you but uh i think crypto twitter will continue to do its thing I so know. we're here to we're here to we're here to and, and hopefully people are tuning in and listening to what you guys have to say because uh i think it it really is important to get it you know as close to the truth and, and you guys really do that for us so appreciate both of you coming on and we'll see you next time